here's today's transformational truth. If the enemy can't pull you down, he'll try to push you up. Welcome to the Transformational Truth Podcast, where we're committed to eliminating the obstacles that take the joy out of life and leadership. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. So here's today's transformational truth. If the enemy can't pull you down, he'll try to push you up. So we're continuing the third part in our series, Seven Deadly Thoughts, based on my book, Seven Deadly Thoughts. And today, we're going to learn how to conquer the third deadly thought that can limit our life. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So the third of the seven deadly thoughts is the thought that I have arrived. Okay, and it's a thought that introduces one of the most diabolical strongholds of all, and that is the stronghold of pride. And if the enemy cannot pull you down, listen, he'll try to push you up. Because pride is to our peace what cancer is to the body. It's, it's deadly. And the longer it lingers, I've discovered, the more it grows. And the longer pride goes without being detected, the more painful it is to remove it and often requires longer recovery time once you do. Once this stronghold of pride has moved in, it becomes especially dangerous because you not only think that you have arrived, but you actually start to feel like you have arrived. And, and pride can be a difficult thing to detect in ourselves, As the old saying goes, pride in others can be plain to see, but in the mirror, not so easily. It's the only disease, pride is the only disease known to man, I've discovered, where everyone else knows it's there, except for the one who has it. And it turns your thoughts against yourself. Listen, it can convince you that you're right and that everybody else is wrong. And one of the most dangerous things I've discovered about uh, believing this lie that you have arrived is that when you truly believe it, you subconsciously put your life in park. Okay, you stop moving towards purpose and you stop moving towards destiny because you you fundamentally believe you've got nothing left to learn. And when you're through learning, you're just, well, through. Additionally, it doesn't take much to offend someone living with the stronghold of pride in their life. And this becomes a major problem because prideful people rarely, if ever, ask for forgiveness because, well, <laughs> we become too prideful to admit we've even made a mistake in the first place. And, and oftentimes when they do ask for forgiveness, it seems like more of a robotic gesture than a real genuine heartfelt appeal. But ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that when it comes to pride, there is no pride as dangerous as spiritual pride. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus addresses some religious folks in the crowd. And in verse 9, it says, Some who were confident of their own righteousness look down on everyone else. So Jesus addresses this form of spiritual pride with a parable. And in the parable, he teaches about the dangers of, of spiritual pride by contrasting two people. There's a religious Pharisee who was absolutely confident in his own righteousness or his own ability to cultivate righteousness in his life. And then he contrasts him against a man who, who was fully aware he had no righteousness at all. 
And in Jesus's parable, I'm not going to read it. You can go back and read it for yourself later on, Luke chapter 18. But he reveals a few things. He teaches some things that are really important regarding spiritual pride. Number one, he teaches us that we can become prideful about our own arrogant attempts to earn righteousness rather than receive righteousness as an act of God's grace. He shows us that we can be prideful about believing that we're somehow less uh, sinful than others and, and more deserving of God's favor. We can become prideful about our spiritual gifts or our, our ministry titles or leadership titles, thinking that somehow they make us superior as a person to another person. And perhaps the most dangerous thing about spiritual pride is its ability to prevent us from receiving the true gospel of grace. Okay, just like the Pharisees in Jesus's parable, we begin to actually believe that all of our religious activity is what makes us righteous. And religious pride, mark my words, will always produce exhaustion. Uh, some of you listening right now just heard me say that, and you're paying a little closer attention because maybe you're tired, maybe you're weary, maybe you're exhausted. Listen to me. Religious pride will set you on the treadmill of religious performance until we're exhausted, trying to prove our worth, you know. And in this weak state of spiritual, physical, and emotional exhaustion, that's when temptation comes when we're the most tired and the most, well, vulnerable. Because when you're weary, when you're tired, that's oftentimes when your defenses are down, and that's oftentimes when we make really bad decisions. This is why I think the enemy loves spiritual pride so much. It is the road to pain. It is the road to loss. It is absolutely the road to burn. And I'm not saying it's the only way we can burn out. Let me be very clear. But it certainly is the enemy's favorite way for us to burn out is through religious pride. It's the tool he uses to get us into that vulnerable state of making, uh, making us more susceptible to these moral failures that, sadly, it feels like we're reading about every single week in the news. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 tells us this story in advance. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before what? A fall. Because the gospel isn't a gospel of earning. Listen to me very carefully. The gospel isn't a gospel of earning. It's a gospel of believing by faith and receiving. And it's that simple. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I can't boast in anything except the cross. If we can get arrogant about it, if we can get prideful about it, if we can brag about, uh, about all of our activity, and this is why we think somehow we're more righteous than somebody else, and we've suddenly arrived, as our deadly thought will convince us we have, uh, then let me tell you something, it's no longer the gospel. If I can brag about it, if I can brag about my prayer life and say, well, it's because of my prayer life that I'm more righteous than you, or it's because of my fasting schedule, I'm more righteous than you, or it's because of my perfect Sunday school attendance uh, that I'm, or my perfect small group attendance, I'm more righteous than you. Listen to me, you've walked away from the gospel at some point, and you have turned this thing into a, a religious pride scenario, where we're starting to take pride in our own accomplishments rather than resting in Jesus's accomplishment at the cross. Okay, Paul said, I can't take glory for this. I Not even an ounce. I can't take any credit for it. It's all the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's why it's called good news. Listen, listen, when it comes to spiritual pride, pride will convince us to work while Jesus invites us to rest. Pride will convince us to earn while Jesus invites us to receive. Pride will convince us to hide our brokenness and sin 
while Jesus invites us to confess and be healed, bring it into the light and get victory. Pride will convince us that we have to prove to God that we're worth His love. But in Christ, God came to us to prove His love to us. And pride will convince you that you haven't done enough to be accepted by God, but the Bible says we're accepted on the basis of what Jesus already did at the cross and our faith in Him. This is why the true New Covenant gospel is a humbling message. It is an absolutely humbling message because none of us can take an ounce of credit for who we are in Christ. We can't take credit for our righteous nature or holy nature. We can't. It's, it's the work of Christ in us. And this is why, listen carefully, pride will initially resist the gospel of grace because there is a part of us that wants to feel accomplished. There's a part of us in our own unrenewed mind that wants to take some credit for our own salvation. But you know what? We can't. It was all Jesus, period. Period. And I am convinced that the root of all other pride, I'm convinced of it, can be traced back to spiritual pride. Every other manifestation of pride in your life or any other sense of, of pride in our lives, in our relationships, in our leadership, in our ministry, I promise you, I, I, I am convinced, nobody can convince me otherwise. If you follow the trail backwards, it's going to lead you to spiritual pride, honestly believing in our own self-righteousness somehow. Now, in the context of leadership, I've discovered that pride will almost always cause you to think that you're ready before you're really ready. As a matter of fact, I love this quote, describing one of the most well-known leaders in the Old Testament of the Bible, uh, author and pastor Phil Pringle, points to Moses, and uh, he uses this moment with Moses to address our need to identify and eliminate pride in our leadership. And here's what he writes. He says, when Moses thought he was ready, he wasn't. When he thought he wasn't, he was. The heart that is ambitious to lead is a poor foundation for great leadership. No leader should be too hungry for the job. We lead because we're called to lead, period. I love that. Because when pride is left unchecked, it can infect every facet of our life, our marriage, our ministry, our relationships with our kids, our finances. All right. Gary Thomas, author Gary Thomas said it this way. He said, if you want to become like Christ more than anything else, we will welcome insights about our shortcomings. If we supremely value our reputation, that is, if we're motivated by pride, we will resent any implication that we're weak or any revelation that shows our failings. Oh, goodness, that's so good. Listen, let's pause for a moment. I want to take a deeper look at a few things or signs that show that maybe the stronghold of pride has set up camp somewhere in our minds, all right? Let's take a look at a few of these and see if any of these resonate with you, all right? Number one, you no longer ask for advice. Okay, probably because you're assuming that you already have all of the answers to your own questions. Number two, you can't remember the last time you asked for help with anything. <laughs> you know why? Because pride will convince you that asking for help is a sign of weakness. All right, number three, you'd rather lose a relationship than admit you were wrong. Wow, that's a big one. Number four, you reject submission. You refuse to follow the leader, whoever it is that God placed in your life to help you and to lead you and to nurture you, whether, whether it's in your career or it's in ministry, right? If I can't follow the leader, I can assure you that pride has set up camp somewhere in my mind. Number five, you're afraid of honest feedback. And when you do get some, you become defensive and indifferent toward the person who offered it to you. 
Number six, you begin to think that you're the only one who could do what you do and that you're the only one that could do it right. (laughs) Number seven, uh, you spend more time trying to figure out how your ministry, your marriage, or your money can benefit you rather than the people that you serve. All right, number eight, you've stopped learning and dismiss the ideas and advice of others. Number nine, in conversation, you spend most of your time talking and very little time listening. All right, these are all symptoms that pride has moved into our mind. And number 10, people have mysteriously stopped answering your phone calls or text messages because your pride feels like too much to bear. Ooh, ouch. Listen, Detecting pride in our own lives can initially be both challenging and painful. Let's be honest about it. Nobody wants to acknowledge or admit that it's there, but it's a reality that all of us have to face. Okay, And speaking from my own experience, I have yet to discover anything as powerful as adversity or conflict to push pride out into the open. Yeah, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Could it be possible that your struggles are nothing more than God loving you and trying to get us on the operating table of life so that he can spiritually remove the pride that is quietly robbing you, not only of your future, but robbing you from maturing in your identity in Christ. And the more we resist God's offer to help us remove this pride, the more time goes by and the more opportunities we tend to lose in life. It so easily becomes a part of who we are. You know, and it masks itself by by basically looking out for your own interests. So, it, I mean, it's, it's it, it always pretends to have your best interest in mind. This is why it's so important to be able to identify pride in our lives. Now, now let's look at some marks of humility. We've talked about identifying symptoms of pride, but let's look at manifestations or marks of humility in our lives. Okay, because the moment you place your faith in Jesus, you know what happens? The Bible says you became a brand new creation. You have a new identity as a son or daughter in the kingdom of God. And your new identity comes directly from who? Jesus. He abides in you. Okay, he's giving you his identity. And one of the truest attributes of that identity is humility. If you study scripture, you won't find anybody more humble than Jesus, the son of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, it says, Jesus gives us this invitation. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Did you hear that? I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Oh my goodness, that's such a good truth. Listen, here's why. Humility produces rest. Pride produces stress. Oh yes, let me say that again. Humility produces rest, but pride produces stress. With that being said, your new nature, your nature being in Christ, uh, your, your, your organic nature now, spiritually speaking, is humility. Let's take a look at a few marks of humility that we see in Jesus. Listen, number one, humility doesn't require public recognition. This is a big one, okay? Humility doesn't throw a fit because their boss forgot to mention their name in a meeting or an email. <laughs> they don't fall apart because somebody forgot to, to CC them in an email. They, they, they don't get easily offended and disappear for three weeks from church because they didn't get enough pats on the back for the work they did on a ministry project. A humble son or daughter in the kingdom of God is not easily moved. Why? Because of their humble nature. Listen, every time somebody tried to give Jesus accolades or push Jesus out front, he, he denied it. He took the back road. He always wanted to kind of be off the radar. 
And this is your new nature. As a humble son or daughter in the kingdom of God, you don't require public recognition because you know that your value is not based on being popular with others. It's based on being fully known and fully loved by Jesus. <laughs> this is the place we get our value. Wow. Humility doesn't require public recognition. Number two, humility admits mistakes. Listen. Pride will always tempt us to pass the blame because pride will convince you to tie your value to being right. Oh, this is important. Your mistakes do not define you. Jesus does. Okay? You, you are not as valuable as you are right. You are as valuable as what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's that simple. That was the price he was willing to pay for you. That's your value. Being wrong doesn't make you less valuable. This is one of the lies that pride will tell you. Well, if you admit you're wrong, you're going to be less valuable. <laughs> That's not true at all. If you admit you're wrong, you actually become more trustworthy because the other people in the room already know you're wrong, okay? But you're finally self-aware enough to admit and humble enough to admit that you're wrong. So now you, you actually build credibility with the people that are around you, with the, the team that you're leading or leading with. It, Jesus declared you eternally valuable and loved at the cross. He calls you beloved. He calls you his son or he calls you his daughter. And because we know he loves us and our value comes from him, we don't have a problem admitting when we're wrong. Because, listen, being wrong doesn't make us less valuable. All right. Number three, humility is a giver, not a taker. Pride will convince us to be takers, okay? But our new nature in Christ of humility will cause us to become generous givers. It's one of the marks of humility, okay? Humility and action looks like generosity. Let me say that again. Humility and action looks like generosity. Children of God understand that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. <laughs> it's simply thinking more of others, Nobody exemplifies humble giving better than God the Father. After all, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. I've heard it said this way, You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. My goodness. All right, number four, humility honors and gives preference to others. Oh, this is important. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Uh, it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote um, that we need to be willing to yield. I, specifically, I think that's uh, James 3 and verse 17, right? Uh, this, this concept of being willing to yield is a spiritual fruit that each believer with the help of the Holy Spirit learns how to bear. And so we look for ways to love and honor each other. E listen, even if we don't always agree on everything in life, we're not going to. We shouldn't expect to. We still honor each other because that's our new nature in Christ. And we even have the capacity to disagree and still be honorable. This is what humility looks like in the life of a believer. This is what humility looks like in the life of, of a spiritual leader who's put their faith in Jesus. And as we wrap this up, here's what I want you to know. He who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Listen, when you place your faith in Jesus, you became a new creation. And every day, the Holy Spirit, who's now living inside of you, is inviting you into this journey of a transformed life. He's inviting us to trust in His good work and cooperate with His desire to cultivate this humility in our lives, this attribute of Christ in our lives, because 
This is who you now are in Christ. <laughs> and I am convinced that humility in every other part of our lives begins by understanding what the Apostle Paul referred to in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. Paul called the gospel, not just the gospel, but the gospel of grace. This is so important. The gospel means the good news of God's grace. We did not earn it. All of our religious activity, no matter how good they are, did not produce who we are in Christ. It was only because of Jesus that we've been saved and we have been made both righteous and holy and been given a brand new nature. Why am I ending on this note? Because I am convinced, as I've already said, that pride in any part of our lives can be traced back to spiritual pride. In the words of Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one, not you or me, can boast or brag. Let's recap today's transformational truth. If the enemy can't pull you down, he'll try to push you up. Listen, if you'd like to grab your own copy of Seven Deadly Thoughts, you can find it online at Amazon.com. And if Transformational Truths is helpful to you, please do me a favor. It means so much to me. If you took a moment and you went over to Apple iTunes and you rated the show and you wrote us a quick review. I want to help you restore the joy to your life and your leadership. I'll see you next time. Thank you.